0: Are you a curiously minded person? Do you love science well today? The S Factor is new for September 4th, 2021. What are we gonna talk about today? Well, we're gonna talk about an accident. What kind of accident? The accident. What the heck is that? Stay tuned, you'll find out. That's the feature topic for today. Let's get ready, because the S Factor starts now. Four, three, two, one. Welcome to The S-Factor. Science. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting edition of The S-Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Welcome aboard my starship. We're going to cruise around the solar system, go into interstellar space a little bit, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor. Welcome aboard for a brand new episode for September 4th, 2021. Thank you for joining me today on cruising 92.1 WVLT. And also, if you're listening to the podcast version of this broadcast, welcome. The S-Factor is all about science. That's what the S and S-Factor stands for. And you can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on this great radio station. The S-Factor, as always, is brought to you by scienceanimated.net. That's my website. There you can find Science Animated Human Body, which is a very family-friendly, action-packed DVD, educational movie for the youngsters out there. You can buy a digital download copy. You can get a streaming copy for $9.99, or the DVD is available as well. And also, there's other fun stuff on the website as well. Orbit Show, special report, past versions of this show, the S yes Factor. Check it out. ScienceAnimated.net. Go up to your browser and the address bar, and just type in ScienceAnimated.net. We can start a dialogue. And if, of course, if you have questions about this radio show, since it's pre-recorded, please feel free to email me. Info at ScienceAnimated.net. Like, let's get right into the best science news that's out there. How many of you have been to the Australian Outback? That is definitely a place that's on my bucket list to visit one day. But the following story comes from Wired Magazine. Nothing can eat Australia's cane toads, so they eat each other. The cane toad may be the poster animal for invasive species. Native to South America, it has been introduced to many ecosystems in the hope it would chow down on agricultural pests. Instead, the toad has become a pest itself, most notably in Australia. Free from the predators and parasites in its native range, the toad's poison glands have turned out to be a hazard for most species that try to eat it where it has been introduced. But that doesn't mean it's completely free of the risk of predation. Australian cane toad tadpoles have been observed feeding on their fellow cane toad offspring. This cannibalism seems to be an evolutionary response to the lack of competing species in its invasive range, causing cane toads to turn on their remaining competition, each other. And the toad has already turned into an additional evolutionary response to try to limit the danger of cannibalism. From an evolutionary perspective, cannibalism can make sense as a way to limit the competition posed by other members of the species. But the research team at the University of Sydney that has tracked the cane toad's cannibalism suggests that the species' successful invasion of Australia has accentuated this evolutionary pressure, something that may occur with other invasive predators. One of the marks of an invasive species is its abundance in the new range at which point competition for limited resources becomes more likely. Cannibalism not only limits this competition, but provides nutritional resources as well. With the Australian population reaching about 10 times the density of the population in cane toad's native range, there's plenty of opportunity for inter-toad competition, and that competition has been documented at early stages in the toad's development. Recently hatched toads spend several days developing into tadpoles, and during this time, often get eaten by older, more mature tadpoles. In a heavily populated body of water, clutches of eggs laid after mature tadpoles are present may be completely wiped out before they can live past the hatchling stage. Tadpoles eating tadpoles can occur in South America, but it happens much more often in Australia, so the researchers decided to see if cannibalism was producing biological differences between the native and invasive populations. To do so, they obtained toads from both native and invasive populations and tracked the behavior of the offspring. To start, the researchers simply placed fertilized eggs in a container with a single tadpole. This showed that the Australian cane toads had become aggressive cannibals, as eggs placed in with them were over two and a half times more likely to be cannibalized before producing a tadpole. While many changes can produce this sort of difference, the researchers demonstrated that the Australian tadpoles were more likely to seek out recently hatched cane toads. When given a choice of moving into empty containers and one containing cane toad hatchlings, the invasive Australian toads were nearly 30 times more likely to go into the container with hatchlings. By the time the hatchlings reached the tadpole stage, and are too large to eat, their fellow tadpoles lose interest. There's some indication that the earlier attraction is based on toxins put into the fertilized eggs by the mother. High levels of predation tend to produce evolutionary responses to limit vulnerability, and cannibalism is no different. The researchers found that Australian toads were simply spending less of their developmental time in the vulnerable hatchling stage In order to avoid some of the impact of cannibalism. This occurred via two different mechanisms. One of these was specifically dependent upon the presence of tadpoles. In other words, when the threat was present, development accelerated. While South American cane toads spent a total of about five days at the hatchling stage, Australian populations only spent three days, so the pressure of cannibalism had cut hatchling development time by nearly half. If you can develop this quickly anyway, why aren't all cane toads rushing through the hatchling stage? The researchers found that growth and development of Australian tadpoles was slower than it was in South American populations. Thus, rushing through the hatchling stage exacts a cost that's paid off by slower growth and development later. These sorts of changes driven by predator-prey interactions have been observed in a variety of species, but it's not clear if anyone has documented them so clearly when predator and prey are the same species. And the researchers involved here make a pretty compelling case that the distinct environment inhibited by an invasive species helps foster this sort of interaction. Unfortunately for Australia, the competitive cannibalism means that, while cane toads are the losers, they're also the winners. So how incredible is nature? Because those hatchlings, those cane toad hatchlings, were being eaten up, they started developing faster to kind of beat that threat. Nature is incredible. Check out this next news bit. Man can change his pupil size on command. Once thought an impossible feat, according to Live Science, a 23-year-old student in Germany can shrink and enlarge his pupils on demand, according to a new case report, a feat that was previously thought to be impossible. Two tiny opposing muscles in the eye act as puppeteers of each pupil you know, that dark center of the eye, dilating or enlarging them in a dark environment to let in more light, and constricting them in a bright environment to limit the amount of light that flows in. This process was thought to be completely automatic. When you step into a dark room, you don't have to consciously tell your pupils to change size. It was previously known that some people can change your pupil size at will, but by using indirect methods. For example, researchers already knew that just thinking about the sun could constrict the pupils and that thinking of a dark room or mentally calculating something could dilate them," said Christopher Strach, senior author of the new case report and an assistant professor in the experimental psychology department at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. But no one thought it was possible to change pupil size by directly controlling it like a muscle. That is, until a student of psychology at Ulm University in Germany contracted strutch after taking one of his courses. When he was about 15 or 16 years old, the young man identified in the case report by his initials DW realized he could change the size of his pupils. I showed a friend that I can tremble with my eyeballs, and he noticed that my pupils became small. But DW didn't notice that he had the ability until he played computer games for long periods of time. Constricting the pupil feels like gripping, tensing something, making it larger... Feels like, feels like fully releasing, relaxing the eye, D.W. told researchers. But at first, he would change his pupil size by focusing in front of or behind an object. But with practice, he learned how to do it without focusing on objects. He told the researchers that to change his pupil size, all he has to do is concentrate on the eye. He doesn't have to imagine a bright or dark environment. This makes D.W. different from other people who have demonstrated the ability to change their pupil size. What's more, that he can feel the muscles in his pupil directly is astonishing as it, as it was thought to be impossible. Can you do something like that? I mean, actually, this is news to me. I, didn't even, I did not even, realize that you could change your pupil size by just imagining a bright room and then a dark room, by just visualizing that in your head. So, you know, I'm used to it happening automatically. And I remember when I was younger and I would go to the optometrist and they would dilate your pupils so they could really look inside the eye and detect, maybe get an early detection if there's a problem. And now they don't even really, they still do it, but there's a machine now that really looks into the eye so deeply and crystal clearly. It looks like you're looking at the the Milky Way galaxy. It's actually beautiful, the image that it produces. But anyway, I remember when I was little and I'd look into the mirror and I'd look at my pupil size, I'd turn the light off and I'd watch my pupils grow. Then I'd turn the light on and I'd watch the pupils shrink. (laughs) I would do this over and over again. Because to me, it was just so cool that this was like an autonomous thing that your body just did. Just made these adjustments based on your environment. Now was just floored by that. I thought it was so cool. Still do. But I never heard of this. I've never heard of someone actually controlling it with their thoughts. Now, how rare is it to do something like this? Or have the ability to do something like this? Well, through a series of tests, the researchers confirmed that DW indeed had, his, had this ability. And they found no indication that he was changing the size of his pupils indirectly. In one test, the researchers measured the electrical properties of the skin by applying voltage to test whether he was aroused by increased mental effort, which also may have increased his pupil size indirectly, and he wasn't. Without using any indirect method, DW could dilate his pupils up to 0.09 inches in diameter and constrict them to 0.03 inches in diameter. What's more, even at the closest point, an object can be for the eye to still see and focus in which the pupil is already maximally constricted, DW could voluntarily constrict his pupil even more. By doing this, he improved his focus and could see objects clearly nearly two times closer to his face than he could if he wasn't controlling his pupil size. The researchers found increased activation of certain parts of the brain involved in volition or the ability to decide and do something out of free will. Now, can other people learn to do this? Possibly, Strach said, Finding and researching more people who have this ability might help the team understand whether there's a strategy for training people to control their pupil size at will. So having the ability to control your pupil size with your mind. We're going to take a quick timeout. You are listening to The S-Factor. I am your host, Chuck Shazer. If you love science, you're on the right spot on your radio dial or on your podcasting service. We will be right back. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, the very first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock, where you can catch me on your favorite podcasting service. You can catch The S Factor on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Tuned In. I believe I'm also on Prime, Amazon Prime Podcast. I'm all over the place, and this is where the S stands for science. And if you dig science, you are at the right spot. Now, here's another interesting news story. Can Greenland sharks improve human longevity? This is brought to you by Yahoo News. Are there vertebrates occupying the planet today whose lifespans extend back to before the founding of the United States? Based on recent research, it seems very likely, and they exist in the form of sharks whose fermented meat are used in a very distinctive Icelandic dish. Scientists have found evidence that Greenland sharks live for hundreds of years, and that there are some whose lifespans extend to four or even 500 years. For some scientists, the lengthy lifespans of certain creatures can also have an impact on research into making humans live longer. That's true for the immortal jellyfish, and it also applies to the Greenland shark. A recent article by Jonathan Moens at Atlas Obscure explores what scientists have learned from their studies of the long-lived sharks and what it might mean for humanity. Greenland sharks' longevity could be chalked up to genetic or lifestyle factors, or some combination of the two. The University of Manchester's Holly Shields suggested that, as Moen writes, Greenland sharks may have a uniquely sophisticated system to repair damaged DNA. Other scientists point to the shark's habitat, cold Arctic waters, and their ability to live for a long period of time on a relatively small amount of food as signs of a very efficient metabolism. This isn't to say that everything about the long lives of these sharks sounds enviable, including the idea that they might not become sexually mature until the age of 150 years old. For the growing body of research on aging, the Greenland shark offers a host of invaluable information. Finding the fountain of youth in some form or fashion has been something that human beings have fantasized about for generations. Maybe we can find out a little bit about that when it comes to these Greenland sharks. If you are a longtime listener of The S-Factor, you'll know that I am the creator of a 40-minute animated movie called Science Animated The Human Body, what I want to do is I want to ask you a question, and you can reply via email since this show was pre-recorded. If you answer this question correctly, you will get a free copy of my movie, Science Animated the Human Body, which has been enjoyed across the nation. Kids absolutely love it. But I'll give you a free copy of that movie if you were the first person to contact me via info at scienceanimated.net and give me the correct answer to the following question. I want to know... How heavy is the earth? How heavy is Earth? If you know the answer to that question, email me at info at scienceanimated.net and you, my friend, will win a free copy of Science Animated the Human Body. And you know what? If you answer incorrectly or you're not the first to answer the question, you know what? I might just have something for you anyway. But send your answer to that question to info at scienceanimated.net. I look forward to hearing your response. The following is from space.com. Primordial black holes may flood the universe. Could one hit Earth? Oh, that would be a bad day at the office. Black holes sound pretty scary. Dark, powerful, foreboding. And now, astrophysicists have cooked up something else. Primordial black holes. Forged in the earliest moments of the universe that flood the present-day cosmos. So what are the chances that one of these ancient monsters will come wandering towards Earth? One astrophysicist has run the numbers. The early universe was a wild, complex time, far different from the mild-mattered cosmos we inhibit today. The earliest moments of the Big Bang were marked by radical phase transitions, the splitting of fundamental elements and other wild events. While scientists understand the physics of the first few minutes, What happened before that is shrouded in mystery. You need some pretty extreme conditions to form black holes. Say a star collapsing in on itself during the final catastrophic moments of its life. Stars weren't around in the first few seconds of the universe's existence, but there may have been just the right condition to forge black holes. All you need is a lot of matter or energy crammed into a tiny enough volume. Let's say a whole bunch of small black holes are swarming the cosmos. What would happen to them? Thankfully, black holes aren't 100% black, and they lose mass through Hawking radiation. The complex quantum mechanical process at the black hole event horizon that allows some particles and radiation to escape. The smaller they are, the faster they lose mass. Black holes less than roughly 100 million tons, slightly lighter than a typical asteroid, will lose about half their mass within the current age of the universe because of the way Hawking radiation works. Black holes that are bigger than that will only lose a small fraction of their mass. The total number of black holes in each galaxy depends on how much of the dark matter you want to explain with them, and how big each one is. No matter how you slice it, though, there are a lot, and each one is fast. Based on computer simulations and observations of galaxy dynamics, dark matter has a velocity of over 100 miles per second, At that speed, an asteroid-mass black hole could cover the distance between Jupiter and Earth in just a couple of weeks. So the question is, should we be scared? What would happen if an asteroid-mass black hole were to hit the Earth? In short, catastrophe. The black hole would puncture a planet's surface like a hot knife through butter, but it would immediately begin to slow down because of its gravitational interaction with Earth. Any atom or molecule or person intersecting the event horizon and boundary of the black hole beyond which nothing, not even light can escape, would simply slip away from the known universe, never to be seen again. In the best case scenario, the black hole would exit through the other side of our planet, leaving the survivors to clean up the mess. In the worst case scenario, the black hole would settle into the core of our planet, where its gravity would be enough to allow the black hole to begin feeding. Eventually, it would devour our entire planet. Thankfully, according to the calculations, the chances of a black hole setting in, settling in Earth's core are rather minimal. Black holes are just too fast. On the other hand, the intersection of our planet with a black hole would lead to another unpleasant reality, heating. During its passage through Earth, a black hole would accrete matter, and that accretion would generate heat. The impact of an asteroid-mass black hole would end up releasing about the same amount of energy as the impact of a kilometer-wide asteroid, the size that killed the dinosaurs. Now, thankfully, black hole collisions are likely rare. In the most optimistic scenario, optimistic by the scientists' standards, that is, so populating a galaxy with the maximum number of black holes, there might be one collision or so every billion years, according to the paper's calculations. So when it comes to black hole collisions, don't get too scared. And that's from (laughs) space.com, that is relieving because they're the kinds of things i think of at night yes i think about coronal mass ejections and gamma ray burst and 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 black holes floating around the galaxy because space really is you know we romanticize it a lot i'm a big star trek fan i like star wars uh, when i was growing up as well and you don't realize we really romanticize it but it is an extremely hostile place out there extremely hostile and you know the, the reality is we have to learn how to master it in some extent in mean, some extent we have not i would say master have mastered it but we have gone to the moon we have done things with machinery with robotics that you know we've gone to mars with that stuff we have explored space just haven't done it with people you know we, have, we haven't really gone out too far with human beings yet The mission to Mars, whenever that does happen, is going to be extraordinary to watch. That's going to be ultra exciting. Can't wait for that. Space is a very dangerous place, very hazardous to human life. However, you know, we were just talking about Hawking radiation. Stephen Hawking was a big proponent of us leaving Earth one day. and Leaving Earth not for any other reason but to spread civilization throughout at least our solar system, given humanity much greater chance of surviving a calamity that may happen on Earth. You know, because we, not only between humans, but th- th- with war and things like that, but just natural things that happen on the Earth, natural cycles that occur that we know through studying the geological record. This article made me feel a little better when it comes to black holes. We're going to take a quick break. You are listening to The S-Factor. My name is Chuck Shazer, the creator of ScienceAnimated.net. Check it out when you have a chance. I think you're going to like what you're going to see there. We got more coming right up. Would you like to get into better shape, lose weight, have more energy, be toned, be stronger, be faster, have better endurance? Well, there's a solution. Tawny Fit. Certified personal trainer Tawny Basil is the owner of Tawny Fit. And having Tawny Basil as your personal trainer can help you get the results you're looking for. Now, whether you want to go to a gym with Tawny Basil and have her by your side, showing you the right way to do the exercises, coming up with the perfect plan for you with your goals in mind, with your personal goals in mind, that's one way you can do it. Also, if you don't want to leave the home, you can do training virtually with Tawny Basil. She will. She has virtual sessions. So you don't have to leave the comfort of your home. And now she also has a facility where you can come to her in a little private gym and you can get your workout in that way. So contact Tawny Basil at tawnyfit at gmail.com. That's tawnyfit at gmail.com for rates. And I think you had an offer, by the way, for the S-Factor folks, didn't you? With a free session if they mentioned the show? Absolutely. We if don't you don't want to forget that. If you mention the show, you get a free session. Um, you can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text READY. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Bissell, text her the message READY to 609-674-8077 or email Tawny. Her email address is tawnyfit at gmail.com. Such good tunes, such good bumper music here on the S-Factor. Welcome back. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. If this is the first time joining me, welcome aboard. The S and S-Factor stands for science. I love science, and I love sharing the latest news in the science world with you. And you can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT and also your favorite podcasting service, this show... It comes a podcast after it airs on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And you can find me on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Tuned In, Pandora, also Amazon Podcast. I'm all over the place. Just go to your favorite podcasting service and type in The S Factor Podcast, and you'll find me there. Want to bring something up real quick before we continue with the science news. Doing a little contest this month. If you can tell me, how Much the Earth weighs? If you're the first person to tell me that correct answer, and you send your answer to info at scienceanimated.net, you will win a free copy of Science Animated The Human Body, which is a 40 minute DVD or stream, your choice. It takes educational animation and films to a whole new level, packed with action, great for kids, seven and up. So if you know the answer to that question, how heavy is the Earth? Be sure to send me an email at info at scienceanimated.net. Now let's get right back into the science news. Following from Live Science, why do faces become less symmetrical with age? You know, I never noticed that. Look at any newborn baby, and their cute little face will likely appear almost entirely symmetrical. But with age, that wee baby will incur wrinkles, drooping skin, and maybe even scars that accentuate asymmetry. In fact, research has shown that the impact of aging isn't limited to wrinkles and fine lines. Our faces actually change shape as we get older. This raises a question, why do our faces become more asymmetrical with age? That's a question that Helen Taylor, an assistant professor of surgery at Mount Auburn Hospital in Massachusetts, began to ponder a few years ago when she was trying to find ways to make plastic surgery procedures more data-driven. The goal of reconstructive plastic surgery, such as repairing a face after trauma, is usually to bring the features closer to symmetry. However, almost all faces have some degree of natural asymmetry. So how far should a plastic surgeon like Taylor go to achieve symmetry? And this is what she said. I started imagining all the kids that came in for facial reconstruction, and it became clear that we didn't have data on what a normal amount of asymmetry is, she told Live Science. I figured we should imagine, I figured we should image some people who hadn't had interventions or trauma. In 2018, a research paper published in a journal of plastic and reconstructive surgery, Taylor and her colleagues used three-dimensional photography to render detailed images of 191 volunteers between the ages of about four months and 88 years. A computer algorithm then calculated and quantified each participant's facial symmetry. We wanted to look and see if there were any factors that correlated with asymmetry in our results. And it turned out there's a fairly linear relationship between age and asymmetry, she said. We also looked at gender and race, but they didn't correlate with asymmetry, whereas age clearly did. Taylor proposed a possible explanation for the link. I think it's probably because the normal forces that act on faces over time don't do so equally. And also grow differently, she said. For example, just because your skin starts to sag on one side of your face doesn't mean it's happening at the exact same rate on the other side. Over time, that adds up, Taylor said. This phenomenon probably isn't limited to the face either. Taylor hopes findings such as these could help the guide plastic surgeon someday. There are a number of disorders such as cleft lip, which require multiple operations over a long period of time, she said. At the moment, it's largely left to individual surgeons to decide when the end goal of those surgeries has been reached, but that could change. Being able to use this tool to follow a patient until you can show that they're within the range of the normative population would be great, she said. It would add quantitative data to the decision and be used to figure out when we should stop operating on people. So don't expect your face to look nearly as symmetrical as a baby's. And know that you're in good company if you have new facial asymmetries. And I looked at some of the examples here, and I can't believe it, but they kind of use a grid to look at the difference as you age. And it is true from what I've seen, it asymmetrical over time as we age. Very interesting. Did you know that? I never heard of that. I never even, I never heard of that happening at all. So very interesting. You know what? It's another thing to look forward to as you age, isn't it? (laughs) Our faces become uneven. Very nice. Our next story here, China wants to build a mega spaceship that's nearly a mile long. China is investigating how to build ultra-large spacecraft that are up to 0.6 miles long. But how feasible is the idea, and what would be the use of such a massive spacecraft? The project is part of a wider call for research proposals from the National Natural Science Foundation of China a funding agency managed by the country's Ministry of Science and Technology. A research outline posted on the Foundation's website describes such enormous spaceships as major strategic aerospace equipment for the future use of space resources, exploration of the mysteries of the universe, and long-term living in orbit. And they have a mock-up of what this is going to look like, and it totally looks like something out of any of your popular science fiction shows like Star Trek or Star Wars. The Foundation wants scientists to conduct research into new lightweight design methods that could limit the amount of construction material that has to be lofted in orbit and new technologies for safely assembling such massive structures in space. If funded, the, feasibil- the feasibility study would run up for five years and have a budget of 15 million yen, which is 2.3 million US. The project might sound like science fiction, but former NASA chief technologist Mason Peck said the idea isn't entirely off the wall, and the challenge is more a question of engineering than fundamental science. I think it's entirely feasible. Peck, now a professor of aerospace engineering at Cornell University, told Live Science. I would describe the problems here not as insurmountable impediments, but rather problems of scale. By far the biggest challenge would be the price tag, noted Peck due to the huge cost of launching objects and materials into space. The International Space Station, which is only 361 feet wide, at its widest point, according to NASA, could cost roughly $100 billion to build, Peck said. So constructing something 10 times larger would strain even the most generous national space budget. Much depends on what kind of structure the Chinese plan to build, though. The ISS is packed with equipment and is designed To accommodate humans, which significantly increases its mass. If we're talking about something that is simply long and not as heavy, then it's a different story," he said. Building techniques could also reduce the cost of getting a behemoth spaceship into space. The conventional approach would be to build components on Earth and then assemble them like Legos in orbit, said Peck, but 3D printing technology could potentially turn compact raw material into structured components of much larger dimensions in space. An even more attractive option would be to source raw material from the moon, which has low gravity compared with Earth, meaning that launching materials from its surface into space would be much easier, according to Peck. Still, the first requires launch infrastructure on the moon and is therefore not an option in the short term. And I always thought, and I've talked about this before on the show, that we would have, like, domed cities on the moon by now. I remember watching science fiction movies growing up, like I'm sure so many of you did, Eventually, one day, it's inevitable that we will have bases on the moon. And then you can actually use the, the moon as a launch pad for going to the other planets. But we'll get there eventually. Now, a structure of such massive proportions will also face unique problems. Whenever a spaceship is subjected to forces, whether from maneuvering in orbit or docking with another vehicle, the motion imparts energy to the spaceship structure that causes it to vibrate and bend, Peck explained. With such a large structure, these vibrations will take a long time to subside, so it's likely the spacecraft will require shock absorbers or active control to counteract those vibrations," he said. Designers will have to make careful trade-offs when deciding what altitude the the spacecraft should orbit at. At lower altitudes, drag from the outer atmosphere slows vehicles down, requiring them to constantly boost themselves into a stable orbit. This is already an issue for the ISS for a much larger structure which has more drag acting on it and would require more fuel to boost back into place. That's a major concern. It's kind of like us talking about building the Starship Enterprise, he told Live Science. It's fantastical, not feasible, and fun to think about, but not very realistic for a level of technology, given the cost. China has also expressed interest in building enormous solar power arrays in orbit and beaming the power back to Earth via microwave beams. But Peck said the economics of such a project just don't stack up. Peck has done some back of the envelope calculations and estimates it would cost around one thousand dollars per watt compared with just two dollars per watt for energy generated from solar panels on earth. So not exactly cost effective yet but again this is just talking about these things trying to figure them out with current technology. If there's developments that happen as things develop you know, as technology gets better solar panel technology, uh, it's going to be a back and forth here. But, you know, harnessing power from the sun, especially out in space doing it, eventually we'll have to do that. We'll have to have some kind of, of device that captures that energy so we don't burn fossil fuels here. It's just a matter of time. It's much it'll be much cleaner and uh, should be a cheaper form of, of powering our planet. Now, perhaps the most promising application for such a large space structure would be scientific, Peck said. A space telescope of that scale could potentially see features on the surface of planets and other solar systems. That could be transformative for our understanding of extrasolar planets and potentially life in the universe. And that was from Live Science. Just imagine that for a moment. Us building a, a spaceship, China building a spaceship, that's almost a mile long. We're going to take a quick time out, And when we come back, we're going to talk about our feature topic the celestial accident. What the heck is that? What does that mean? We're going to find out when we come back from our break. You're listening to The S Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer. Be right back. Oh, I love that tune. Welcome back to the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Thank you for joining me today on Cruising92.1 WVLT. Catch me here the first Saturday of every month. And also don't forget, if you want to listen to me on the go, on a podcast, when you're working out, when you're driving long distances, go to your favorite podcasting service, type in the S Factor, and you will see my show pop right up. Give me a rating, give me a like, give me a share. And of course, check out scienceanimated.net. There you'll find the family friendly 40 minute movie called Science Animated Human Body. It is a whole kind of different take. It's a whole new take on educational animations. It's fun, and it's exciting. People across the country love it. They send me letters. It is a huge hit nationwide. You can check it out at scienceanimated.net. Go your address bar in your, in your favorite browser. Type that in, and it'll take you directly to me. There's a little bio about me there. I'm the creator of that movie. There's also some free stuff on YouTube, and also you can check out all past S-Factors, all the past radio shows I've done on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, and all the wide range of topics that we've covered, from the science of love, murder hornets, the science of ghosts, are there aliens out there, comets, rogue planets, viruses, solar flares, the list goes on and on. So if any of that stuff interests you, check out scienceanimated.net. You can listen to the podcast straight from my website or your favorite podcasting service. Now, let's talk about our feature topic, the celestial accident. What does that mean? What is that about? Let's get right into it. Mysterious object called the accident has been careening through the Milky Way for 10 billion years. You know, when I hear about something making its way through the Milky Way, astronomers have taken the first detailed look at a mysterious Milky Way object known as the Accident and discovered that it's even more perplexing than previous studies indicated. The Accident is not quite a star. Scientists can tell from its dim glow that no nuclear fusion powering the object, and it's not quite a planet either. According to a study published June 30th in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, the accident is something in between, a rare class of object known as a brown dwarf or a failed star. Now, brown dwarfs can be up to 80 times larger than Jupiter, but typically hold just a tiny fraction of the mass of Earth's sun, according to Britannica. I just want you guys to think about that for a minute. Jupiter, our defender in our solar system, the planet that takes a lot of asteroid impacts that would otherwise be heading our way. It's a Goliath, and brown dwarfs can be up to 80 times larger. It's hard for the human brain to even comprehend such size. Now, astronomers suspect that these objects start their lives like stars, but don't accumulate enough mass to sustain nuclear fusion in their cores. Instead, brown dwarfs slowly cool and dim over millions or billions of years, until they're nothing more than dull red or purple embers. While brown dwarfs are far too dim to see with the naked eye, scientists have detected about 2,000 such objects in the Milky Way using infrared telescopes like NASA's near-Earth object, Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. The accident turned up in one such survey of the sky, when a citizen scientist caught a glimpse of the object swooping across the screen and photobombing a different group of brown dwarfs. brown dwarf candidates. This action, this accidental discovery gave the object its nickname, the accident. Now, the accident baffled scientists after its surprise discovery. It didn't look like a typical brown dwarf. The object appeared faint in some infrared wavelengths, suggesting it was a very cold and old brown dwarf, but it appeared bright in other wavelengths, indicating that it was a warm, young brown dwarf. This object defied all our expectations, lead study author David Kipperke Kirkpatrick, an astrophysicist at Caltech in Pasadena, California, said in a statement, This contradiction puzzled astronomers and sent them on a hunt to examine the illogical object with NASA's Hubble and Spitzer space telescopes, as well as the infrared telescope at the W.N. Keek Observatory in Hawaii. With this extra data, the researchers learn that the accident is even stranger than they had previously believed. For one thing, it's moving fast. Located about 50 light-years from Earth, the accident zooms across the galaxy at about 500,000 miles per hour. Let me repeat that. It zooms across our galaxy at about 500,000 miles per hour, which is much, much faster than a typical brown dwarf. According to the astronomers, this fact likely means that the accident is very old and has been jousted around by gravity of other larger objects for billions of years accelerating its movement. Now, remember here, folks, just like when I did the show on Rogue Planets, which I think was this past February, this is a heavenly body that is not in orbit around any star or any massive object as we are. Now, instead, we're all kind of orbiting around a supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way, but I'm talking more along the lines of what's orbiting our Sun? planets orbiting a star or a binary star system with two with two suns. This brown dwarf that they're calling the accident here is not tied gravitationally to any in, in any kind of solar system type structure. So this thing's just flinging around out there, bouncing around, much like a rogue planet. And man, is this thing moving. The elements in the object's atmosphere are also puzzling based on the wavelengths of infra- infrared light being emitted by the accident Astronomers learn that the object is low in methane, a common gas in brown dwarfs with temperatures similar to the accident, the team wrote, because the methane is comprised of hydrogen and carbon, because methane is composed of hydrogen and carbon, a methane scarcity suggests the object initially formed 10 to 13 billion years ago when the Milky Way was filled almost entirely with hydrogen and helium, but little carbon. Carbon came later as the oldest stars exploded and spread the element throughout the galaxy. All this suggests that the accident is exceptionally old, incredibly cold brown dwarf that formed when the galaxy was poor in methane, making the object more than double the median age of all other known brown dwarfs. It's not a surprise to find a brown dwarf this old, but it is a surprise to find one in our backyard, said study co-author Federico Moranco, an astrophysicist at Caltech. We expected that brown dwarfs this old exist, but we also expected them to be incredibly rare. The chance of finding one so close to the solar system could be a lucky coincidence, where it tells us that they're more common than we thought. Boy, I hope not. (laughs) Finding more ultra-old, ultra-cold brown dwarfs could be challenging, the researchers said, given how dim they appear, even to the most sophisticated infrared telescopes. But with more eyes on the stars than ever before, thanks to trained astronomers and citizen scientists, it's only a matter of time before someone sees another accident. Now, I think that's very important to understand too, the fact that on Earth right now, we have a ton of amateur astronomers. And you know what? Many times amateur astronomers find things like asteroids and things of that nature. So as far as I'm concerned, the more eyes on the sky, the better. So if it's something that we see coming, we can prepare for it. If there's any way we can comp- if there's any way we can prepare at all. Space is a marvelous place and there is so much to learn. There's so many new discoveries happening every day. I love bringing this content to you. Wanna thank you very much for joining me today on the S Factor. If you know anyone that loves science, has an interest in learning, that enjoys these things, please share my show with them. And you can check out more about me at scienceanimated.net. You can look me up on your favorite podcasting service. I'm all over the place. Until next time, stay well and stay curious. You have been listening to The S-Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer. I'll see you next time, everybody. You have been listening to The S-Factor. Brought to you by scienceanimated.net on Cruising 92.1 WVLT.